Now, with that said, let me invite, your, invite you to grab your Bibles and turn, turn open to Hebrews chapter 11 as we continue our series titled Stories of Faith. And we're basically walking through this chapter over several weeks together, looking at all the individual stories uh, that are cataloged here, that are listed here, that are strung together here, uh, showing uh, men and women throughout the history of God's people who lived by faith, who trusted God to forge out a glorious future for his people. So Hebrews chapter 11, tonight's story concerns a guy by the name of Noah. But before I jump into that story, one of my favorite uh, books, at least best titles of a book that that I've ever come across, one that's just really stuck to me, was written by a guy named Eugene Peterson. And the title of this book was called, it was describing the Christian life, what does it mean to live by faith and to walk by faith. And he said, essentially, the Christian life, according to the title of this book, is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. This is what Peterson writes about the Christian life in this regard. He said, The Christian life is going to God, and in going to God, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on, breathe the same air, drink the same water, shop in the same stores, read the same newspapers, are citizens under the same government, pay the same prices for groceries and gasoline, fear the same dangers, are subject to the same pressures, get the same distresses, are buried in the same ground. The difference is that each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God. We know we are accompanied by God. We know we are ruled by God. And if you consider those three categories, I think those three categories have been touched on over the past couple of weeks as we've looked at different stories of faith. You remember the first story of faith that we looked at concerned uh, Abel. And we talked about how he responded to the grace of God's promise to him by by offering up his best to God in worship. He believed God was going to send the Messiah through the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And the, the word of that grace, the word of that promise, word of that preservation stuck with Abel. It awakened his soul so that when he drew near to God in worship, he wasn't approaching God in a common, generic way. He approached him with his very best. He worshiped God. Essentially, he responded the same way Christians respond to the gospel today. As you read through the book of Romans, perhaps, and you kind of trace the outline of the gospel and what it is Jesus lived for and he died for and he rose from the grave for, you get to the point in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where our response is called for. And Paul says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, in light of his grace, in light of who Jesus is and what he has done, offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The life of faith begins when we respond to God's grace with worship and adoration of all that Jesus lived for, died for, and rose from the grave for. But then you moved in that last week, and we talked about a guy named Enoch. And we saw how in Abel's story, we saw faith worshiping in response to grace. In Enoch's story, what do we see? We see faith walking, engaging in God's fellowship and his communion and his accompaniment as he journeyed through this world. So we talked about what it means to walk with God and fellowship with God and move in the same direction as God, at the same pace as God, walking on the same path as God. So faith worships, faith walks. And then tonight when we step into the story of Noah, we're going to see that faith works. We're going to see Noah responding to God with an active lifestyle, responding to God with an active task that he is called to do and that he gives himself to essentially a long obedience in the same direction. 
So you consider those three categories of worship, walking, and working. And understand that I think the way the, the Hebrews chapter 11 has been inspired and organized, that those three categories are three categories we want to hold on to. And they are three categories that we want to make sure stay in that order in our hearts and in our minds. The Christian life begins when we worship Jesus The Christian life constitutes a relationship with Jesus where we're walking with him. And only then does the Christian life move into working, does it move into activity. Worship, walking, and working. And I know if you're like me, a lot of times your heart wants to disjoint that order. Your heart wants to rearrange that sequence. So many of us step into a relationship with God and we focus so much on the work that we're doing for God that we do not worship God and we do not walk with God. And things can get really squirrely when those things get out of order in our hearts and our minds. It can cause things to come out of our hearts that God doesn't desire and that are unhelpful to other people. I'll give you an example. In Luke chapter 10, the story of Mary and Martha, two sisters who find themselves in the presence of Jesus. Jesus is there just because he wants to hang out with them. He just wants to be with them. He's not looking to be served by them or impressed by them in any way, shape, or form. And Mary kind of got that picture. So she's found seated at the feet of Jesus, worshiping him, listening to his voice. But Martha, on the other hand, she she wasn't there. She was in the kitchen busying herself with a lot of good things. But there were a lot of things that were taking her attention away from the main reason Jesus was in the house. And so when she comes into the room to to confront, really, Mary and to ask Jesus, hey, uh, why isn't Mary helping me? Why is she sitting here essentially saying, why is she being lazy? Why isn't she working? Tell her to help me. Nasty stuff coming out of her heart because she's so obsessed with the work she's doing in that moment. She's not engaging the presence of Jesus as Mary. And so she grows bitter, she grows envious perhaps, and she lashes out. But then Jesus turns his attention to Martha, says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. Mary is modeling to you what I really desire and what I really want in this moment. I want you to be with me. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't expect us to do work. It doesn't mean Jesus doesn't expect us to serve and to engage and to help others. In fact, that story is positioned right before the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus challenges his disciples to love their neighbors as themselves, to engage in tangible expressions of love and compassion for those who are hurting. But it does mean that we got to keep the order straight in our hearts, the order straight in our minds. Worship leads to walking. Walking leads to working. And so we want to hold on to that as we consider the story of Noah, lest we get it disordered, lest we get it misarranged in our lives. So when we use a phrase tonight, faith works, understand that it's coming on the tail end of worship. It's coming on the tail end of walking. And if you ever wondered, you know, what does it mean to uh, be a disciple or to make disciple? I want to encourage you to keep these three categories in your mind as you seek to make disciples. As you seek to make disciples, this is kind of the order you want to lead people through. You want to step into relationship with others and lead them to respond to grace, to to share the gospel with them so that their hearts respond to the gospel of God's grace. And they begin worshiping Jesus, stepping into a relationship where they are loving Jesus and are being loved by Jesus. But then what are you doing? After that happens, and that happens in a person's life, you, you teach them, you instruct them on how to walk with Jesus. You make a disciple by saying, hey, look, this is what it means to, to talk to God. This is how you pray. This is what it means for you to hear from God. This is how you can read the scriptures and study the scriptures. This is how you can meet with God and begin walking with him through this world. And so you begin to disciple people by not leading with work, but leading with worship, leading with walking, and then stepping into the activity of the Christian life. Then start talking about what life looks like. 
as you continually, continually find yourself ruled by God, obeying God, serving God, doing the things, the types of activities that God would call you to do, and the types of activities that God commands you to do. But it comes on the tail end of this dynamic, worship, walking, working. But here, Noah is an example of a faith that works. You see him responding to what God is doing in his life with an act of life. And there's a few things that you and I are going to pick up from him, beginning in verse 7. Check out that first phrase there. Verse 7, it says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Okay, So Noah here, uh, the first thing that we learn about him is that he's being warned by God concerning events that he's not yet seen, that God has spoken to Noah, said, hey, Noah, some things are about to happen, and he warned Noah with this word. So if we're going to talk about a faith that works, understand that it begins with you and I paying attention to God's word, paying attention to what it is he is saying, to what it is he promises to do. And in the story of Noah, the first, the way God's word comes to him, it comes to him in the form of a warning, where God's word is a warning to him about what will soon go down. Now, to get a picture as to what the, what's being referred to there, this event as yet unseen, you've got to turn back to Genesis chapter 6. So hold your spot in Hebrews 11, turn back to Genesis chapter 6, and there you're going to see kind of the start of Noah's story. Now, Noah's story covers a large swath of Scripture. It runs from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 9. We're only going to read a few verses in chapter 6, but just to give you an idea as to what is being referred to here, picking up, picking up in verse 8. Now, as I read this, try to listen for the order. Worship, walking, working, grace, faith, obedience. Try try to hear that in verse 8. It starts off, verse 8, but Noah what? Found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What is that? That's grace. He received grace. He found favor in the eyes of God. Then you keep going. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah, what did he do? He walked with God. He communed with God. He fellowshiped with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth, here's where we kind of get after the warning that God gave to Noah. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So things got really, really bad. It was a bad day in Noah's day, and it had been getting that way for a long, long time. You get to verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. What is God's warning? His warning is judgment is coming. His warning is things have gotten so bad it would be unloving of me to allow it to continue. God would not be a good God if he allowed sinful humanity to do whatever it is they wanted for as long as they wanted, irrespective of his glory, irrespective of the image of God in which he created them. God would not be good, loving, kind, gracious, merciful to allow that to continue forever and ever and ever. So what does God do? He says, hey, I'm about to check it. I'm about to stop it. Judgment is coming. Things have gotten bad. I'm not going to allow it to continue much longer. So that was the word that Noah received from from God. And if you and I are going to think about what it means to pay attention to the Lord, I think it begins with paying attention to his word, but understand that his word is a double-edged sword. That his word comes into our lives, yes, in words of warning. 
in words of warning where God warns us of things and he warns us of things that are coming so that we might be checked, so that we might repent, so that we might come around. But understand that God's word is a double-edged sword. On one hand, it cuts with words of warning, but on the other hand, it, it brings words of salvation. It's two sides of the same coin. God's word brings warning and salvation, and we want to pay attention to both sides of God's word. We want to hear everything that God has to say about everything. And in Noah's day, God says, look, judgment is coming, and it's going to come in this unprecedented event. And those of you who are familiar with the story of Noah, you know that God would send a flood, and he would cleanse the earth, so to speak. He would purge the land with water, with a flood that would wipe the world clean, an unprecedented event, the the likes of which would sear itself into the collective conscience of humanity all throughout antiquity. There's a reason why flood stories pop up outside of the Bible. There's a reason why flood stories show up in other literature and other ancient people groups have a story and a history that speaks to this type of event because this type of event has seared itself into the collective conscience of human beings. Many of you perhaps have read the Epic of Gilgamesh, a Babylonian epic that describes a type of flood. But what's interesting, when you compare the, the Epic of Gilgamesh with the biblical account, you understand that perhaps it's the same collective conscience that's interpreting this event of a flood, this catastrophic event, only the Babylonians interpreted it in a way that is a far cry from what God spoke to Noah. If you're familiar with that story, you know that the flood came in the Epic of Gilgamesh, not in response to sin, not because God is just, not because God is good. It came because the gods of the Babylonian peoples were annoyed by the noise in the world. They were annoyed by all the ruckus human beings were making on the earth. And so he just wondered, hey, uh, you, you guys are being too loud. I'm going to flood the earth. Just wipe yourself clean. It's a grumpy neighbor, basically, is what the gods of that epic is. But here when you step into the biblical account, the inspiration that Noah received as he heard God's warning, he said that, look, judgment is coming and it's not coming because God is flying off the handle. It's not coming because God is acting rashly or in an uncalculated manner. No, it's coming because God is just and human beings are unjust. It's coming because God is righteous and human beings are unrighteous. It's coming because God is holy and human beings are unholy. So God's measured response to the wickedness of the world in Noah's day was an act of grace, not allowing human beings to continue on in the state in which they were in. And so Noah was received this warning. God's word comes to us in words of warning, and you and I would do well to pay attention. And when we fail to pay attention to words of warning in our lives, you know that that can lead to destructive ends, right? I learned this uh, kind of in the hard way with the most embarrassing moment of my life. When I was 17 years old, I was at a party and my high school crush was there and she decided she wanted to go home. So I volunteered to drive her home. So we were out in the middle of nowhere in, in Louisiana, which is where, I was, where I'm originally from. And, and we were out at like a deer camp. And so we were literally out in the middle. Lots of kids out there, lots of high school students. Wasn't a really holy scene, but you know, we were out there and, and she wanted to go home. So I decided I would take her home. And so we got in my truck and we left this deer camp. And the problem was I didn't know where I was going. And, uh, but I couldn't let her know that I didn't know where I was going. So I had to act confident and act like I knew what I was doing. So we left the deer camp and we came to this stop sign where you could either go right or left. And she's, she has a pretty good instinct of direction. And she said, well, maybe we ought to go left. And I said, no, well, uh, 
let's go right. You can never go wrong going right. Said something like that. And so I turned right and we kind of went in that direction. I was real confident and moving along. And I could just see her squirming in her seat, worried about where we were heading. And, and we'd pass some signs that I couldn't really read anywhere. Some of them had like a lake image on them, but I just kind of ignored them and kept going. And, and eventually we're driving. It's late at night. It's dark. And I'm in a 1986 Dodge Ram 50, just a junk of a trunk. And we're coming down this old country road. And and before too long, she notices some glistening out on the horizon. And uh, she says, uh, there's something out there. And I, and I looked up and said, well, what could it be? And then it, that glistening just got brighter and brighter the closer we got to this lake. And it turns out that turning right put me on a road whose end destination was Lake Darbone, this lake in North Louisiana. And, and by the time I realized we were approaching this lake, and for some reason this road just kind of dumps out into this lake, I, I slammed on my brakes, but I was going too fast, and so I just kind of skidded. And my truck, I drove my truck into the lake. <laughs> talking Michael Scott, the office, something along those lines. I, I'm in the lake, and water's coming into the floorboard of my truck. We both jump out. We <laughs> splash up to shore, and... Fortunately, I was kind of high-centered on this sandbar, and so I didn't lose my truck, but we did have to walk about three miles all the way back to the camp to get somebody with a much bigger trunk to come and jerk me out. Now, I share that for the simple, for the simple reason, for the simple point that ignoring warnings can lead to destruction, right? Ignoring warnings can put you in positions you don't want to be in. It can lead you to places you don't want to go. So as we are considering what does it mean to walk by faith and to listen to God's word, paying attention to it, are you paying attention to his words of warning? Are you listening to the warnings that God gives you? You consider some of the ways that God brings his warnings into our lives. The most primary one would be the scriptures, right? The scriptures contain words of warning. There's a lot in the Bible to say about judgment and hell and wrath. There's a lot of that in the Bible. You can't really read the Bible and ignore it. You have to do something with it. I would recommend pay attention to it. And so here we've got the scriptures that give us words of warning. But then you also have the church. You know, God brings his words of warning into our lives from one another and so we want to be the type of community when we recognize blind spots in someone's life that is leading them in a direction they don't want to go that may result in some type of destruction in their lives. Are we going to love one another well enough to offer up words of warning, to help one another see things that they're not seeing and to avoid disasters that they may be going to but they may not be currently conscious of or aware of? So God's words of warning come to us through the scriptures. They come to us from the church. They come to us through the conscience. You know what it feels like to, to be tempted by something and your conscience tries to, starts to check you. What is happening there? It's God's word of warning. It is grace to you. Hey, stop going in the direction that you're going in. And the more you ignore your conscience, the harder your conscience will become. A searing effect can take place, and it will become increasingly more difficult for you to listen to your conscience as you ignore your conscience. So we want to be careful to consider what does it mean to pay attention to God's word, paying attention to his words of warning. So do you listen to those? Do you listen to words of warning? And then I would ask you another way. Do you love one another enough to issue words of warning? Do you love people enough to issue words of warning, to talk about things that may be hard to talk about, to confront areas in our lives that are leading to addictions and, and downward spirals? Do we love one another well enough to issue words of warning? One of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I love Jesus is because Jesus loved me enough to warn me. 
Just like Jesus has loved you enough to warn you, he's issued warnings to each and every one of us. He does so, in fact, in Matthew chapter 24. You have a passage there where Jesus issues a warning, and it's funny. He, he draws a connection with the story of Noah. And listen to the warning that Jesus gives to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. They were going about their regular rhythms, ordinary days, giving no thought to the judgment that was coming until the day when Noah entered the ark. So when Noah got into his boat, that's when people looked up and said, wait a second, uh, this guy, this odd guy over here has been building a boat for 120 years. He, he seems serious. He's actually getting in that box called a boat. And, and then it says in verse 38, and they were unaware, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. But then Jesus says, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. There will be another day like that day. Only that day is not going to take the form of a flood, but it is going to take the form of divine judgment. The imagery that the New Testament uses takes the form of fire. And that type of imagery, speaking of divine judgment that is coming into the world one day, Jesus warns us in Matthew 24, and we are warned in many places in the Scriptures. And I'm wondering if you are willing to pay attention to those warnings. And I'm wondering if you're willing to live in light of those warnings. There's a guy by the name of N.T. Wright, who's one of the most respected New Testament scholars in the world today. And, and he just kind of assessed the church in the Western world. And he points out that there's wide swaths of Christianity that are not paying attention to the warnings of Scripture. They don't talk about things like hell and wrath and judgment anymore. And, and he issues a warning to the church. And I want to share his warning to you and pray that we ourselves would heed it, but also pray that this type of warning would be heard by many, many followers of Jesus. He says, you know, I find it quite impossible reading the New Testament on the one hand and the newspaper on the other to suppose that there will be no ultimate condemnation, no final loss, no human beings to whom, as C.S. Lewis put it, God will eventually say, thy will be done. I wish it were otherwise, but one cannot forever whistle. One cannot forever whistle. There's wideness in God's mercy in the darkness of Hiroshima, of Auschwitz, of the murder of children, and the careless greed that enslaves millions with debts not their own. He says humankind cannot, alas, bear very much reality. And the massive denial of reality by the cheap, get this, the cheap and cheerful universalism of Western liberalism has a lot to answer for. The cheap and cheerful universalism of Western liberalism has a lot to answer for. That branches of Christianity, movements in Christianity that want to not talk about hell, not talk about judgment, gloss over the warning, words of warnings in the scripture, according to N.T. Wright, those who do have a lot to answer for one day. We will all stand before God and give an account for the faithfulness which, with, with which we lived our lives and the faithfulness with which we paid attention to his word. And I'm wondering, are we humble enough and are we loving enough to pay attention to the hard truths of scripture? Will we pay attention to words of warning? So that's one side of this word that Noah received. But you know that mixed with God's words of warning would come words of salvation, Right? God never just brings warning without any hope. He never just drops a hard truth without showing a way out or a way of an escape or some way of salvation. You come back to Genesis chapter 6 and you see, there, you see this here with Noah's life where you have words of warning but followed 
immediately in verse 14 with a word of salvation. Listen to what God says to Noah. Verse 14. Okay, he said judgment is coming. And then in verse 14, listen to what he says to Noah. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. That's a word of salvation. That's a word of hope. That's a word of promise. Make yourself an ark of gopher, of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. So we want to pay attention to God's word. We want to pay attention to words of warning and words of salvation. And there are two words of salvation in that one verse. Look at that word ark. That word ark literally translates box. And so God is saying, no, I want you to build a box. And what's interesting about that word is the same word used in the Exodus story when baby Moses is needing to be delivered from uh, the Pharaoh's uh, basically holocaust where he's, destroy- he's murdering Jewish, newborn Jewish boys. And so he's taken and he's placed in what? He's placed in a box. And then that box, is put, that box is put in the river and it floats down so he can escape that moment. And God, in so doing, provides, a, provides hope for the future of the Israelite people. Very similar thing going on in Noah's life. I'm going to give you a box. I want you to build this box. I'm going to tell you how to do it. You're going to get in it. When you get in it, what you're going to do, you're going to escape judgment. And there's going to be hope for my people in the world once again. My plan of redemption is going to continue because I'm not wiping the slate clean entirely. I'm going to put you in a box and protect you, preserve you, give you refuge. So that's one word of salvation that he receives. The next word is found there with this word pitch. Saying, I want you to cover this box with pitch. That word pitch, elsewhere in the Old Testament, that same word translates atonement. It's the same word for covering. He's saying, I'm going to put you in this refuge, and then you're going to be covered. It's going to be atoned, so to speak. It's going to be covered with pitch. Why? Because when you cover this boat with pitch, waters, judgment waters, is not going to be able to leak into the boat. You are going to be preserved. You are going to be protected. You are going to be covered. You're going to be atoned for, so to speak. I'll give you an example. Leviticus chapter 11, the same language is used there in reference to the sacrificial system as God would instruct his people on how to... uh, Offer up sacrifices that would account for the people's atonement, the forgiveness of their sins, and blood was involved in those sacrifices. Leviticus chapter 7, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, for I have given given it to you upon the altar to be what? To be pitch for your souls, to be covering for your souls, to be atonement for your souls. Then he goes on. For it is the blood that serves as pitch, as atonement for the soul. What are, we, what are we being hinted at in the use of that language in the Old Testament? Well, it's all leading us towards the ultimate provision of God, the ultimate refuge of God, the ultimate atonement of God that would come to us in the person of Jesus. When Jesus would step into the world and he would live and he would die and he would rise again so that those of us who put our faith in him, we take refuge in him and we're covered by him. What does that mean for us? It means we escape judgment. It means we escape condemnation. It means that the, the, whatever form judgment takes in the future is not going to leak in. You have your refuge in Christ who is your ark, so to speak. You are covered by the blood of Christ who has paid the penalty for your sin and my sin This is the gospel. So mixed and mingled with the words of warning come words of salvation. And the life of faith pays attention to both. 
Why do you think the cross of Christ is so important? Why is the gospel to be cherished? Well, it's so important and to be cherished, not because we only focus on words of salvation, but because we know the gospel in the context of God's words of warning, that judgment is coming, but judgment can be escaped in and through Jesus. This is why we call him Savior. This is why we call him King. This is why we give our lives to Jesus. He is our ark. He is our pitch. He is our atonement. He is our covering. So we want to pay attention to God's word because God's word always, it always drives us to Jesus. Now there's another interesting correlation to this text found in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, we are taught... Peter talks about the patience of God in all of this, how patient God is to refrain from judging the world, and he gives us reasons why. I'll show it to you in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. 2 Peter 3, verse 9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, that is, to do what he says he's going to do, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. He's patient toward you. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Not wanting anyone to perish. He shows patience. He gives you time. But you don't want to take his patience for granted. One day his patience is going to wind down. And he will show himself to be the good and gracious, the kind and merciful God he is. Not by refusing to judge the world, but by actually judging the world. Saying there's coming a day when I can't allow humanity to continue on in the state in which she is. So judgment is coming, but salvation is here as well. So until that day comes, let's flee from that. Let's step into Christ. Let's reach repentance. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? I don't know what any of that means. I just know judgment is coming, but salvation is available. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Words of warning, words of salvation mingled together all throughout the scriptures and your appreciation of the gospel will skyrocket only to the degree you're willing to listen to both, paying attention to both. So here you've got faith that pays attention to God's word. But then you move into that next phrase in Noah's life and it goes from a life of faith paying attention to God's word to Uh, A life of faith that essentially makes adjustments to God's word. In light of what I've heard, in light of what I'm hearing, I'm going to adjust my life accordingly. Notice what Noah does in verse 7. It says in the very next phrase, In reverent fear, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. In reverent fear, he started, he went to work. His faith in this word he received from God showed itself in activity. It showed itself in work. It showed himself in him engaging this project for what Genesis 6 would tell us lasted 120 years. 120 years, he's building a boat. And it's a bizarre boat to be built in a bizarre location of the world. Noah lived miles and miles and miles away from a seafaring culture. 
It wasn't common to see boats where Noah lived. His world in Mesopotamia was nestled between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, both of those far removed from the Mediterranean Sea, far south of the Black Sea. None of it was common where you would see boats being built, and yet here you have Noah building a boat for 120 years in response to God's word. What can we say he's doing, but he's adjusting his life. He's adjusting his life to do what God said to do. And what I love about that dynamic is that in chapter 6, verse 15, God says, look, no, I'm going to tell you to build a boat. This is how you're going to do it. God says, I'm going to tell you clearly how to build a boat, how big it should be, how long it should be, how wide it should be, how high it can be. God says, I'm going to give you instructions. And you drop down to chapter 6, verse 22, and we're told that Noah did this. He did all that was commanded of him. He did exactly what God told him to do. He adjusted his life and he worked on a project for 120 years. There's a lot of things I think we can say about that, but one thing I want to encourage you with is that I love the fact that God called Noah to do, to, do the, to do this thing. He gave words of warning, words of salvation. Then he said, look, I'm going to tell you how to do it. And you think about how often God does that for people. You get into Exodus chapter 3. God shows up in the wilderness. He meets Moses. Moses recognizes that he's in the holy presence of God, and he, he understands that things could go very, very bad for him if he pressed in too close too quickly. And, and so the Lord graciously spoke, Hey, I want you to come near. I want you to hear me. But before you do, take off your feet. I mean, take off your sandals. Feet would be weird. Take off your sandals, for the ground on which you are standing is holy. And he graciously instruct Moses on how to approach him. You see this in the sacrificial system. God graciously telling his people, look, I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to have a relationship with you. But you've got to pay attention to how I'm telling you to approach me. I'm going to tell you what to do, what sacrifices to be made when, how to go about various things in the tabernacle, in the temple. And then you take that all the way all the way to the person of Jesus. And what does Jesus say when he steps onto the scene? Well, he tells, he tells people, look, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Another way to say it, the Father wants you to come to him. But if you're going to come to him, you've got to come to him on his terms. You've got to adjust your life according to his calling, according to his commands. And so what did Jesus tell people over and over and over again? He said, repent, believe the gospel. Repent, believe the gospel. Repent, believe the gospel. If you want a right relationship with God that escapes divine judgment and enjoys salvation, you cannot find it outside of Jesus. You have to draw near to the Father through the Son whom he sent to live and to die and to rise again for your salvation. So we want to step towards God in and through the person of Jesus. There's no other way around it. There's no other way to get to this God. But then you consider Moses' life again, and you consider that's one dynamic we want to think about. But then we also want to think about how as we respond to grace and as we walk with God and we begin to get active with the faith in which we have, we find ourselves constantly making various adjustments to that which God wants to do, constantly adjusting our lives to God's word. And you know from last week that we adjust our lives according to Revelation according to that which God says in the scriptures, that which is required of every disciple. There's a way of life that God calls every Christian into, and it's required of all, and that life looks like faith in Jesus. That life looks like baptism. That life looks like uh, participating with God's people's activity in the world. And, and so that we adjust according to Revelation, but we also adjust to that word I made up last week, and I don't know if this annoys you or not, but that word, relevation. 
that there are things that God calls you to do to adjust your life that is particularly relevant to your life, to your season, to your gifts, to your skills, to your passions, to your vocation, to your calling, to the burdens you feel about life in this world, a particular relevation that you are to adjust your life in order to be obedient, to adjust your life in order to, for God's rulership of your life to be made known. One example of this would be your finances. You consider how all Christians are called to exercise sacrificial generosity, to give to the needy, to care for those who are hurting. But that's what Revelation says. Revelation says, here's here's how you are to do this particularly. Your budget's not going to look like my budget. Our budgets are going to look different, but all of them should reflect to some degree, and according to Revelation, so to speak, varying varying ways to be sacrificially generous, varying ways to give our money to support the church, to bring relief to the poor, and to promote mission throughout the world. You consider the same thing with Jesus' revelation saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's true of everyone who's in Christ. Relevation says, who are you discipling? What people group are you going after? What burdens you about this world that, that is igniting your passion, that's wanting, that, that you're wanting to move your feet towards and help bring gospel remedy to a hurting situation or to a, a people group that perhaps that haven't heard the gospel or learned about Jesus yet? So you got revelation, you got relevation, both of which are ways we adjust our lives to be about the things God is calling us to. It's ways our faith works in the world. Essentially, what Noah was going after in Hebrews chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 6 was a long obedience in the same direction. It's not unlike a story I read in a book called Pursuing Justice. And in this book, Pursuing Justice, the writer, uh, Ken Witzma, describes a gentleman in the Congo who was giving his life for 15 years, helping the most vulnerable people in his part of the world. But he was such an influential leader, so strong at what he had done, the credibility he had gained with the people of his country, that Westerners came in and they tried to hire him out to other roles and to bring him into other positions. And, but he was committed not only to revelation, I need to care for the hurting, but to relevation in his life, that God had called him to do something specific, and he was going to remain faithful to that task, a long obedience in the same direction. This is what the book writes. It says, this gentleman was born and raised in what is one of the most war-torn regions of the globe today, eastern Congo. His life is regularly threatened, and he faces the seemingly impossible task of trying to restore villages decimated by rape, murder, and plunder. Some visiting executives from a large, well-known global relief organization once toured the region. They noticed what an effective job my friend was doing and offered him a position as the leader of their Congo operations. He quickly turned them down. On paper, it was the kind of offer you can't refuse. Higher pay, more security, great influence. A dream promotion for most Westerners. But he refused for a simple reason. Listen to what he said. He said, God gave me the job I have. He's helped me build the relationships and the respect that I have. He has opened the door for me all these years and kept me safe on every trip out into the bush. I'm right where God has called me to be. So why would I go anywhere else? I don't just want to do good. That's not what he was after. He's not just wanting to do good. He says, I want to be where God wants me to be. He's living according to revelation and relevation. He's adjusted his life and he's committed to a long obedience in the same direction. If we're going to live by faith and have a story of faith being written through our lives, what are we doing? We're paying attention to God's word. We're adjusting our life according to God's word. We're living in response to that which God is doing in us and that which God desires to do through us. But you may be asking, well, how how do I discern that type of direction? How do I discern that type of activity? Well, I would encourage you, give yourself to revelation first. 
Give yourself to revelation first. Learn the clear commands and the clear calling and the clear way of life that God has laid out for you as his child, as his son, and as his daughter. Familiarize yourself with the revelation of God in the scriptures. And as you familiarize yourself with that, revelation will come. You will find the Holy Spirit connecting dots in your life and through your life, showing you how Scripture applies in relevant ways to your life in particular situations and scenarios, choices you're making. You're, you're able to make choices drift, fueled by revelation, inspired by revelation, so to speak, as the dots are being connected in your soul and you're walking by faith, adjusting your life according to what God is speaking, according to that which God is doing. So let me ask you, what, what adjustments need to be made in your life? What adjustments, perhaps, need to be made in your life right now? There's a phrase here in Hebrews chapter 11 that jumps out, jumped out at me this week as I was meditating upon it. It's kind of a convicting phrase when I, when I think about my role as a dad. And I think about the life of faith that I'm trying to live and knowing that I have three kids and that they're seeing, this, they're seeing me profess faith in Jesus and and then I'm worried and wondering, well, are they seeing me practice my faith in Jesus? Do they see my faith at work? And so you see this phrase there at the end of, at the, in the middle of verse 7, where it says that Noah responded with reverent fear, that is holy obedience, constructed an ark for, get this, the saving of his household. That his walk of faith, his work of faith spilled out into the salvation of his household. That would include his wife, no doubt, his sons. It would include other members of the household who perhaps lived with them and ran with them, was a part of his little community, served their salvation. And as a dad, I can't help but wonder if my life of faith, if there's integrity in it. Is there integrity in my life of faith so that what I'm professing is being practiced, so that what I'm saying is being seen by my little ones? And what type of influence will that and can that have on the, on the legacy I'm leaving them? There was a research project come out, it came out of Purdue, uh, Purdue University several years ago, and it was an article written in the Journal of Applied Developmental Psychology. And it's an interesting study because in it, they found that children were more likely to adopt their parents' beliefs when they had a clear understanding of what their parents' beliefs were. The woman who authored the article named Lynn, I can't pronounce her last name, Uh, we'll go with Lynn. She wrote this. She said, we found the accuracy of a child's perception of a parent's belief is affected by all the things that a parent does. Their apprehension of mom and dad's faith is determined by what they, is is, uh, affected by all the things that a parent does. But then she goes on. This includes taking the time to explain their beliefs and encouraging the child to participate in activities the parents think support those beliefs. In other words, bring some integrity into the household. Bring some integrity into your home. Whether you're parents with kids, whether you are a single person living with housemates, bring some integrity into the households so that you're explaining, okay, why do I prioritize gathering with God's people week in and week out on a Sunday in Seattle? Why would I do so in the summer for crying out loud when we could be out extending our weekends? Why would I prioritize this type of gathering? Why would I prioritize sacrificial generosity with my time and my talents and my treasures? Why am I making the choices that I'm making? And when it becomes appropriate, you then explain the rationale. You explain why Jesus loved you and why you were loving him and 
And then you start making choices and connecting the dots for other people to see and to learn. And all of a sudden, integrity begins to happen. Influence occurs and other people benefit. Benefit from your story of faith because your faith is marked by integrity. So let me ask you, mom and dad, do your kids see you prioritizing the things of God in your life? Do they see you serving with God's people on a regular basis? Do they see you loving your neighbors and blessing other people? What adjustments do your kids need to see you make that would bring this further down the road? And not just parents. Let me ask those, the singles among us who are living with housemates, are your housemates seeing a life of integrity? Are you connecting the dots between what you believe and how you're behaving? Is your faith working, so to speak? This was Noah's story, and his household benefited. His household was saved as a result. But then you come to the last phrase of verse 7, and it's kind of a strange one. It then goes on to say, By this, that is his, the faith that was working in Noah's life, he, referring to Noah, condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By, by this, Noah condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see, a life of faith pays attention to God's word. It adjusts to God's word. And ultimately, as we're making adjustments, as we're coming underneath the rulership of God in our lives, our life of faith, in a sense, authenticates God's word. It authenticates God's word for people to see and to sense and to catch a glimpse of. And you begin to see influence spilling out over and over and over again. But again, you have a strange phrase where it says, Noah condemned the world. What does that mean? Does that mean he put up a soapbox, grabbed a megaphone, and just started shouting at the world? Does he do what we see people are doing uh, under the name of Jesus outside of uh, Safeco Field and, and barking at people and, and throwing it, hurling out accusations and condemning thoughts, bringing words of warning, but not really bringing much word of salvation? You see, there's always two extremes that you can go in your discipleship. You can put the accent on words of warning. You can put the accent on words of salvation. Healthy discipleship brings them together, holds them both in tension, holds them both in sequence. We never issue warnings without offering hope and salvation. And the reason we offer salvation is because there are words of warning. So what are we to make of this? What type of condemnation did Noah uh, bring to the world? I think it's similar to what Jesus would explain in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, there's a moment where Jesus is talking in very similar language under very similar themes. And listen to what Jesus says about his presence in the world. John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus didn't come to condemn, but to bring salvation. But then he goes on. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is what? Is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There's a sense in which light, when you walk into a dark room and you turn on a light switch, light exposes what's already lurking in the darkness. When Jesus entered the world, what did he do? He exposed what was already lurking in the world. Noah's life of faith as he was building his boat and obeying God's word in antiquity, what was it doing? He turned on a light. 
and the light of God's revelation in Noah's life, the light of Noah's faith that was working, what was it doing? It was exposing what was already lurking in the world. Noah brought no new information as, as it related to condemnation to the world. The world was condemned already. But Noah's faith, and by his faith working, it, it highlighted that condemnation. It showed that condemnation. And then suddenly Noah's life was set in contrast to his era. And he becomes an heir of the righteousness that comes from God. In a very similar way, Jesus would step into the world and he would turn the light switch on. And he didn't step into the world pointing the finger of condemnation at everyone. He came into the world because the world was already condemned. The world was already broken. It was already fallen. It was already characterized by sin and dominated by Satan and, and plagued by death. And so Jesus steps in and just by virtue of his presence, of his, commun- of his, of his relationship with his father and the way that he loved people, People got uncomfortable. People shrunk back from Jesus because they could sense there was something different about him. Not everyone was attracted to Jesus. I don't care what people may tell you on TV. A lot of people were repulsed by Jesus because a lot of people preferred their sin. They preferred their darkness than they did to Jesus' light and to Jesus' love and to Jesus' truth. And the same can be said today. A lot of people are repulsed by Jesus. And chances are, if you live by faith, people are going to be repulsed by you too. Is there enough integrity to your faith to press on even when that is the case? Not to exalt yourself above others so that you're condemning them, but just to live a humble, loving, simple life of faith that exposes what is already present in the world, not because you're pointing it out, but because you're being who God has called you to be and you're doing what God has called you to do. And the world is drawing its own conclusion as it becomes clear to everyone that there's a difference between Jesus and those who aren't Jesus. There's a difference between Jesus and those who walk with Jesus and those who aren't Jesus and do not walk with Jesus. There's a big difference. So we carry forward the righteousness that comes by faith in God. We live lives of obedience, of holiness, of righteousness. Our faith works. But again, it doesn't work because we're trying to commend ourselves to God. We work because God's already commended us in Jesus. We will never face condemnation or judgment from God in this world. That's the beauty of being with Jesus. And because of that, we are free to live today. We are free to walk by faith. We are free to work by faith. We are free to do everything that God calls us to do because we have nothing to lose. So we do what Paul tells us to do in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, where he says, always abound in the work of the Lord. Give yourself to God's activity. Give yourself to God's rulership. Always abound in in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You have nothing to lose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to consider these realities and to consider the story of faith that you are scripting in us and through us. And and I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would move among us now to cause us to pay attention to your word, that we would hear and heed your words of warning and your words of salvation. God, would you give us grace to make adjustments to that which you were revealing, to that which you were speaking, to that which you were doing in our lives. Help us to adjust accordingly. I pray that if repentance needs to occur, that it would occur. I pray that if confession needs to occur, it would occur. Help us to adjust our lives so that we may live out the faith that we've been called into. And God, I pray that your word would be authenticated in our lives and, and that we would live lives that honor you and help others and contribute to the flourishing of those around us, all in Jesus' name. We thank you, Jesus, for coming and being condemned in our place so that we'll 
so that we never have to face that, so that we might escape that. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.